safeguarding concerns from an employment and regulatory law perspective. You're listening to the Public Law Podcast, brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers. Hello and welcome to Everyone's Business, a safeguarding podcast. This mini-series of podcasts is part of the 39 Essex Public Law Podcast. And as you know, in this series, we look at how safeguarding is developing not only here at home, but around the world. We look at safeguarding adults as well as children, and we explore safeguarding in different settings. I'm your host, Ian Brownhill, and today I'm joined in the studio by two guests, Matthew Wart and Tim Kulikan. Matthew is a partner in the employment and pensions team at Anthony Collins Solicitors, where he leads the firm's work in the health and social care sectors. Tim is a partner also at Anthony Collins, where he leads the firm's regulatory team. His work predominantly relates to advising and representing clients in the health and social care and social housing sectors. And I'm happy to say that I've had the pleasure of working with both of them in both regulatory and employment law cases, which have had a safeguarding flavour. So hello and welcome to you both. Morning, Ian. Well, I'll start with you first, Matthew. How does an employment lawyer find themselves dealing with safeguarding issues? Well, thanks, Ian. As employers have a duty to protect health and safety and, and welfare of their employees, and also the people that might be affected by their activities, safeguarding touches a, a real broad range of employment law issues, and particularly in the work we do at Anthony Collins. Uh, we're a social purpose law firm, which means we work with sectors where we feel we can make a difference, um, such as health and social care and social housing and education. And on those sectors um, are predominantly responsible for helping the vulnerable uh, and safeguarding can therefore often crop up. For example, there might be abuse allegations, which mm. um, relate to perhaps in a self, social care setting uh, in, in relation to the, some of the charities we work with. Um, similar allegations can arise. And so they then often lead into to conduct concerns in relation to mm. employees concerned. And so in those matters, it, it's critical that uh, employers act appropriately in, in, in accordance with their employment law obligations. But balancing that with safeguarding obligations can sometimes be tricky. Um, fairness from an employment law perspective being maintained is, is obviously critical for the, the employment law aspects. But sometimes mm. the expectations in respect of safeguarding um, may appear to suggest that that you should jump through some hurdles that from an employment law perspective you might not want to do. And mm. I think um, there's a, a, a really interesting case that, that, that shows some of that challenge, which I'm not sure if this is one you've come across, but it's a, a case uh, where the Court of Appeal looked at um, the, the approach that some nurses were taking to a particular patient with dementia and effectively they mm. had some challenges um, with this particular patient and decided that the best way of managing his behaviours was to, to tie him to a chair with some bed yes. sheets. Which yes, is, I, I do know the case, yeah. Yeah, fairly shocking to, to, to yep. any of us in, in, in terms of a set of, of facts. And in, in that case, the, um, the, the matter was, was quickly reported to the Vulnerable Adult Protection Team. And as a result, the, the two nurses, who were very experienced nurses, were suspended and, and the mm. matter was referred on to the police. And effectively, that was what the, 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 the Vulnerable Adult uh, Protection Committee required to happen. And, and, and so that's what's, what's happened. Mm. But the Court of Appeal effectively made some very damning comments and said, 
it was it was little short of astonishing that that the matter had been referred to the police in in, in the circumstances. And so their expectations from an employment law perspective were, were, were that actually there'd be much more care taken about a decision to suspend in the case mm. and, 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 a, and a decision to refer. And I think that went effectively against what the, the, the safeguarding advice had clearly been in the mm. circumstances. So I think that shows some of the tension that can arise between employment law and regulatory uh, concerns from from in terms of safeguarding and why it's yeah. important that um, employment lawyers and regulatory lawyers work together on, on on these issues. So I hope that gives a bit of a flavour as to, to to how these things arise, and it probably feeds well into uh, Tim's role in, in 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 these matters. Well, absolutely, that was a very neat segue. So, Tim, how does a regulatory lawyer get involved with safeguarding? I mean, I suppose um, f- from our perspective, um, the way that we get involved in safeguarding issues, I think varies. Um, in terms of the types of clients that we're supporting. So Mm. in addition to the work that we do in relation to social care and social housing, we're also supporting clients in the education sector, charities, and in particular charities um, from a faith-based perspective. Mm. So in relation to all of those clients, we'll probably be assisting them in a proactive way in terms of reviewing safeguarding policies, assisting them perhaps on an ad hoc basis in relation to their approach to safeguarding issues um, in, in, in general. So it's trying mm. to make sure that they've they're taking the right approach in relation to their safeguarding obligations in the first place. One of the Cases that you know we, we dealt with over the course of the last two or three years, which was particularly interesting to be involved in, was supporting a faith-based organisation and its involvement in the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse. Mm. So they were asked to participate um, in the module in relation to current safeguarding practices. So that was very much mm. a question of assisting them in articulating what they thought they could share in terms of best practice and lessons that could be learned and shared throughout the throughout the sector. And then, of course, and this is probably where we've worked more closely with with you, um, there are those cases where we're involved on a reactive basis. So an incident has taken place, um, mm. clearly in terms of the social care sector. Um, it is a sector where they have to deal with people who, who've died um, on, on a fairly regular basis. Many of those will be expected deaths. But again, there will be cases where there are you know, unanswered questions in terms of what the particular sequence of events was so we'll be involved in supporting social care and social housing providers in relation to inquests and Mm. in those cases there's almost invariably a local authority safeguarding um, investigation running alongside it and then the final area where we're likely to get involved i suppose is is those cases where something significant um, appears to have gone wrong so those cases perhaps where the police are investigating particularly where they're investigating um, an individual member of staff and therefore there's Mm. that overlap with the employment procedures that that matt's been speaking about where we need to be guiding the provider through um, their engagement with the police as well as working with matt to 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 ensure that we're providing support in terms of uh, how the provider deals with their individual employee um, through to those cases where actually there's scrutiny from the police in terms of what's happened um, on the part of mm. the provider themselves and guiding the, our client through the, the, the police um, and regulatory investigations. And at that serious end, we'll naturally also be involved um, advising in relation to things like their obligations to report um, and cooperate with the Charity Commission. So that's a, a really good point to bring in something which I think is really important in respect of 
safeguarding. And, and you mentioned, Tim, before the um, the sort of proactive rather than the reactive, so putting together policies, making sure that things are in place for those events when they do happen. Uh, and one of the things I just wanted to talk about today, as I've got you both here at the same time, is whistleblowers and the importance of whistleblowers. So I suppose I'm going to put Matthew on the spot and go to him first and basically ask him to explain to our listener what is a whistleblower, why are they so important in both employment law and and how does that that work in sort of a safeguarding context? Yeah, thanks, Ian. So essentially a a whistleblower is, is an individual that highlights an issue or concern that has got consequences beyond just the their employee relationship with their employer it's it's it's, mm. it's a it's a, a wider concern that they've seen about how the, the organization they're working within is complying with their obligations and, and complying with their legal obligations and whistleblowers are given particular protection in in the law and uh, employment law basically creates an expectation that nobody should be subjected to any detriment because they've blown the whistle and that nobody mm-hmm. should be dismissed because they've they've blown the whistle and the rationale behind that being to encourage people to speak up without fear of being reprimanded or or, or suffering consequences in in, in the workplace mm. and it's certainly something we've seen an increasing amount of um, over the past two or three years. And I would say that perhaps COVID has accentuated Definitely. that to some extent with with different challenges that organisations have, have, have faced. They've had to deal with perhaps things that they've not expected before with where the guidance has been less clear. And some people have thought that actually what they're seeing from their organisation hasn't been, hasn't been good enough. So I would say that Whistleblowing is something that that's that's been on 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 the rise, and actually dis- determining whether someone has blown the whistle or not and is protected is actually quite a technical area of of, of em- employment law. Um, and it effectively, a, a whistleblower has to disclose information, um, mm. and 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 so it's not just a case of. of firing off an allegation to say, well, this this isn't good enough, how you're dealing with this. They're, they're required to disclose information that conveys facts that, that, that tend to show that there's been some breach of particular um, obligations. And so one of the, 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 the jobs that an employment lawyer might often have to do is to, to think about, well, is, is this actually information that's been disclosed? Does it suggest a particular breach? Um, and then ha- has it been disclosed uh, in the public interest, i.e., mm. are, the, are the wider implications uh, mm. relating to what they've what they've disclosed? And 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 where there is, there's then obviously a, an obligation on the employer to to, to treat that in an, in an appropriate way, and um, not to. Um, not not to treat somebody differently because they've, they've made that that allegation, and often some of the challenge f- from an employment law perspective can come because whistleblowers can become um, very sort of entrenched in their particular view and also expect mm-hmm. to be told everything uh, that the yes. organisation is going to do in response to their their whistleblowing. Yeah, but that isn't always always possible. Yeah. So what what an employer who receives a whistleblowing allegation will want to do is to to carry out an investigation into the concerns that have been raised, um, 
But because they're wider concerns, they might not always be able to go back to the whistleblower and tell them exactly what they've done in relation to those concerns. Mm. That will be the case where it relates to perhaps um, a, a situation that's confidential. And that, you know, that might well be the case in, in, in some of the safeguarding ca- cases sure. that, that, that go on. So there's this fine balance that has to be struck between um, investigating, letting a whistleblower know that you've taken their concerns seriously and that they've been properly investigated, but not necessarily able to tell them all of the outcomes. In, mm. in some cases, that, that won't be a problem and, and, it, and it will be able to happen. But I think what we, we find is that those organisations that have, have really spent the time setting out their whistleblowing policy very clearly about what they're going to do, what they're, mm. how they're going to investigate, who they're going to communicate with and what they're going to communicate, they're then in a much better position to, to, to deal with whistleblowing cases well. And also those organisations that have created an intentional culture where they encourage whistleblowing and, and actually mm. it, it doesn't end up in quite such a formal process of necessarily even going down the whistleblowing route that they've created a culture where people are, are regularly raising concerns and, and having those ad- addressed and, 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 and they've got a, a much more dynamic culture. So I think from an em- em- employer perspective, having really clear policies, but creating the right culture for whistleblowing is, 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 is really critical. And Tim, in terms of expectations from regulators, my experience has been that the regulators who I've dealt with, say the Charity Commission, the CQC, and so on, will expect whistleblowers to be protected, especially in safeguarding type cases. Is that your experience as well? Absolutely. And I suppose from, from a regulatory perspective, particularly with the CQC, um, that is something which providers are inspected for on a, a, as part of their, their, their routine inspections. So mm. there is a requirement to have processes by which people can report safeguarding concerns. There's mm. a requirement to have an effective complaints um, policy um, through, through which people can, can report issues that need to be looked at. And almost the the, the approach to whistleblowers is the sort of the emergency safety valve, which comes mm-hmm. at the end of that. So I think it links in with Matt's point that if you develop a really positive culture in relation to reporting concerns, then hopefully nobody will need to use the whistleblowing route to, to, to raise them. Because if you've encouraged people to think that they can raise a whistleblowing concern, then hopefully actually they can just raise it in the normal way by reporting um, something that, that, that that's worrying them. Um, mm. But Despite that, I mean, I'm almost implying that sort of whistleblowing should be the should be the last resort. If you put the resources in, if you put the time in to, to show people that you will respond positively to, to whistleblowing, then hopefully it means that you don't need to use it because they're, they're just addressing it as part of their day-to-day activities and that they know that they'll be listened to. And those organisations that don't do that, those organisations where the CQC come in and staff say, we don't know how to report safeguarding concerns. Mm. We wouldn't know what to do in the event that we wanted to, to, to raise something as a whistleblower are going to increasingly find that they're on the receiving end of a very poor rating from the CQC. Um, and certainly if they're a charity, that that may well be being communicated on to the Charity Commission. Do you, uh, it's a question for both of you really, I suppose, but do you think that there is sometimes a problem because the whistleblower policy sits separately to the safeguarding policy and they don't always marry up. Certainly we see that from our, our perspective. There needs to be a very clear link between the, between the two. Um, 
so that, I mean, if you can see that the link to the whistleblowing policy and the safeguarding policy, um, then it acts as that positive encouragement that you will, will be listened to. And equally, if you've got someone who perhaps just because they haven't read the right bit of the policy or the right bit mm. of their, their, their handbook, who looks at the word whistleblowing and thinks that's what they're, that, that, that they need to do, that actually if the whistleblowing policy is something that they get their hands on and they can see actually at the start of that, look, the first thing you need to think about is whether you could be raising this internally um, in, in, in the normal way, then hopefully it pushes them back into that more normal route of just raising concerns on a regular basis. If an organisation is making the right sounds, is providing the right support and encouragement in relation to reporting safeguarding concerns, then why should anyone feel the need to, to raise it as a whistleblowing, either to a higher level within the organisation or, worst case, externally? Uh, but Matthew, I suppose... I don't know what the answer to this is going to be, but in my head, if someone's raising a concern with a sort of safeguarding flavour, so for example, a carer is saying, I'm concerned because um, of my colleagues' activity, I'm concerned that every time uh, they provide care to a particular person, um, they don't follow the manual, manual handling care plan or something like that. Do, do you think that that person would almost invariably and sometimes unintentionally be protected in any event i think they they would be likely to be protected and, and the example you give is, is, a, is a good one in terms of some of the overlapping procedures that you end up with with here because mm. whilst that might be a, a whistleblowing complaint um you've also got a disciplinary process that might transpire after an investigation mm. and the, the outcome of that disciplinary process might be confidential um, back to the original whistleblower. So I, th I think it's a, it's a good example of, of how different procedures have, have got to work alongside each other in dealing with these matters. Can I just ask you both, building on that point, so if there's a Section 42 inquiry going on by the local authority in respect of safeguarding adults, or there's a CQC investigation or a Charity Commission investigation, how does that impact your response to potentially you've got an employee who potentially is harming a client group? I mean, I don't understand. How, does the, how do the two marry up? How can you do that disciplinary work whilst there are these external investigations going on as well? It's often a real tension, Ian, and, and I think w w w what we try and do is to ensure people get some early ad advice and mm. and to, to try and get it agreed as to who's going to be carrying out uh, what steps in relation to an in investigation because what employers don't want is to have huge periods of paid suspension for mm. employees because other people are carrying out inquiries and they're not allowed to, to speak to their em employees. Mm. So normally we try to get some agreement that the em employer will carry out an investigation from an employment law perspective and, mm. and and have agreement as to who's going to carry out that investigation. So it's somebody who's appropriately independent, someone who's appropriately senior and, and, and to, to, to carry out that in investigation and, and to get agreement that that can proceed. But it's it's not always forthcoming. And then you have to make mm. a, a decision as to, as, to, as to what to do. And often it will be, you'll have, you won't be able to make, make the progress you might want to. Tim? 
I was just going to come in on that point. I, I mean, I think this is, you know, it's, it's an area where it's very, very difficult to give advice which fits all scenarios. But the absolutely classic scenario that we encounter is that you've got not only all of those processes that you were talking about, but a police investigation running over the top of that as well. Sure, absolutely. And there is nearly always a presumption, I think, on the part of the police that everyone else is going to stop mm. while they carry out their investigation. And that if anyone else lifts a finger or scrutinizes, you know, for one moment what's what's gone on, that it's going to cause prejudice to the to, to the police investigation. Now there may well be cases where that is the case, because yeah. the police have not yet carried out an interview, considered whether they want to arrest a suspect, and therefore if the individual who's being looked at doesn't even know that the allegation has been made, charging ahead with an internal invest investigation could well prejudice the police investigation by tipping someone off allowing them to, to, to destroy evidence, for example. But that tends to be the extreme cases. It's very rare in the cases that we deal with that the, the individual being looked at doesn't know that the allegation has been Absolutely. made. And in those cases, we always think it's important to have really constructive dialogue with the police so that even if their initial response is to say, we don't want you to carry on with your investigation because we think it will prejudice um, our work, the response back to that should be, well, why? Can we have yeah. a, a conversation about what actual prejudice would be caused? Can't we work together to try and make sure that we continue to do uh, what we need to do to ensure that the people we support are protected, that we fulfil our obligations in terms of reporting to other organisations and regulators, but you, the police, can carry on with your investigation in an effective way and that we all work together cooperatively. And often, if you manage to have those conversations, we can reach a sensible agreement. Whilst we have the luxury of both of you as well, one of the things we've been doing in this series is we've been talking about safeguarding concerns where an organisation or a charity are based in this country, have a legal footprint here, potentially regulated here by the Charity Commission, but something goes on overseas. I just was wondering, from both of your perspectives, what sort of challenges does that pose to you firstly there's being having an awareness of which law is going to apply to the, mm. to the circumstances from an employment law perspective and is 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 the person subject to british employment law that's that needs consideration but also what's the local law in in the area where the incident has taken place mm. and sometimes it might be appropriate to effectively have advice in in, in relation to both jurisdictions to to to, mm. to, to, to to cover that that risk off but i think subject to understanding that the principles in terms of how matters are investigated are the same you're still mm. going to want to have um, uh, an independent, as far as possible, investigation. That when I, and when I say independent, I don't necessarily mean that it's got to be somebody from an external organisation. But in in serious cases, that can be suitable. Mm. Um, but but somebody who is 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 not likely to be sort of named or have any responsibility um, directly for, for for what's what's gone on in in the circumstances. Uh, so to to investigate it really well and to, and to still make a decision in a in a robust way that if it complies with UK employment law, it, it's likely that it's going to comply with 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 the local law as well. But you'd certainly mm. want to be satisfied of that. And, and, to, and again, from, from a, perspective, I was going to say from a regulatory perspective, it, it's a question of really mapping through, as as Matt says, you know who is going to be involved in terms of those organizations in terms of those investigations which organizations are going to be be taking the lead 
and at the very least, you know, even if it's a, a local regulatory body in the, the foreign country which is going to be taking taking the lead in the most serious cases, at the very least, you're going to be having your sort of reporting um, obligations in terms of the Charity Commission, the yes. scrutiny that they're likely to be um, placing upon you in terms of some of the high-profile cases that we've seen over the last few years, and importantly. Um, you know, no matter how remote the issues, the potential reputational issues for the organisation concerned um, are going to sit back in, 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 in this country and therefore something that you need to grapple with um, pretty rapidly. Tim, I'll stick with you for the moment. So if a, and this can be any, any concern, if, if a regulator comes to you, comes to one of your clients, charity, a company, uh, CIC, whatever, and says, we've had... Uh, complaint or some information or intelligence with regard to a safeguarding concern we're going to investigate you as a result of that what is your initial advice what what are your initial tips to those companies charities and other bodies i think that the overwhelming tip is to try and pull together as much information as you possibly can from an early stage and get a really clear understanding of what facts you can actually establish. And then to make sure that you are pulling together a really, really clear overview in terms of what has happened so that you are confident in terms of the information that you can share with other regulators. You've got a really clear idea about what aspects remain uncertain and need to be um, investigated and importantly um, that can become sort of the, the rock bed in terms of your approach to all of the multiple investigations um, and processes that you you may be involved with over time what we tend to find is because of the multiple different organizations that you're reporting to the police mm. safeguarding authorities the charity commission um, a coroner you'll be communicating with with families you then have the terribly fluid situation in terms of sort of safeguarding investigations where there are precious few rules about what what, what information has to be provided and how that if you're communicating to all of those organizations, there is a risk that you start inadvertently saying different things to different organizations mm-hmm. or that people start filling in the gaps in terms of what you've been able to establish and start speculating because they think it's helpful. Go to a safeguarding meeting and they're asked a question they don't know the answer to and they just tell the, 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 the meeting what they think. And at the end of yeah. that process... All of the regulators, all of the different organisations start swapping notes and see that you've told them totally different things in those in, in those different processes. It doesn't end happily. And mm. therefore, it's a question of bringing together the, the, all of the information that you can and being really confident and making sure that you're speaking with one voice to all of those organisations um, so that you remain open, transparent, you investigate things thoroughly, but you remove any ambiguity you remove any uncertainty again just for those people who are listening from those organizations when do you think is the time to call in lawyers so i'll give you an example i've been called in to section 42 inquiries when someone's had a letter from a local authority saying we're looking into something so a really low level concern and on the other hand i've been certainly in the inquest um scenario very last minute phoned up day or two before an inquest saying 
we've got a we've got a big safeguarding inquest coming up. Can you can you appear? So so when do you think is the right time? The right time I think has got to be right at the start. And mm-hmm. certainly we are called on a regular basis in relation to, for example, safeguarding inquiries. Mm. Um, and there is no harm in contacting us to take a view about whether we need to be in, involved or not. And if it's mm. absolutely clear that the organisation has got it all under control and that there is unlikely to be an overlap with any other process, it may well be that our involvement remains behind the scenes, we don't go on the record, um, and that we're just providing a relatively low level of support just keeping a watching brief in terms of what may may develop. But the alternative scenario that you've just outlined, where you're instructed two days before the inquest, um, I think is every lawyer's nightmare. Um, because mm. all of the work that I've been talking about in terms of drawing together the evidence, communicating with no doubt a myriad of organisations has already taken place. Sure. And then you are left picking up the pieces at a time when it's probably too late. Two different accounts have been provided to the local authority safeguarding investigation. Totally different accounts have been provided to to, to the police. All of that information has been provided to the coroner who's demanded a statement. The organisation has provided um, perhaps a less than professional account to the the coroner. It then becomes Mm. very, very difficult, even in a case where genuinely the organisation has done nothing wrong, to communicate that effectively and clearly um, to everyone through the inquest process. And it's not just a question of communicating that clearly to the to the coroner. Of course, you know, the family of the deceased the are family, absolutely, absolutely the heart of um, the inquest process. And what we often find is that in cases where our clients can communicate really clearly, really concisely to a family through the inquest process what has happened, but it actually brings the family and the organisation together because everyone has a really clear understanding of what happened um, mm. and it just helps bring closure to the, to, to the family and an appreciation that in 99.9% of cases, the organisation and its staff have been doing their level best to provide professional, appropriate and supportive um, care. And Matthew, from, a, from the perspective of employment law, when you have a safeguarding concern that overlaps with an employment law issue. So be it whistleblowing, be it conduct discipline, be it sometimes resignation and retirement as well. What are your tips for our listener in that respect? Well, well, I would say it overlaps with with some of what Tim was saying is that probably where we see things go wrong the most in, in these cases does relate to the quality of the investigation that's carried out. Mm. And that can be that you know, in, in serious cases, the investigator kind of hears what the sort of allegation is and they set out on their investigation determined to prove that allegation. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and that therefore leads the questions they ask to be too narrow um, mm. and, and potentially that they, 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 they haven't thought about other, other potential scenarios. So I think getting the investigator to, to have the mindset that things aren't always what they seem at the start mm-hmm. that they've that they've got um, a, a broad remit as, as, as Tim was describing and that they they just seek to gather all of the evidence and then present that without coming to judgment is is, is probably the most critical stage I would say mm. and, and that's where things most often go go wrong and for us as lawyers if the investigation, hasn't done the right job and it's perhaps already 
come to judgment is perhaps the hardest thing to unpick further down the line, certainly without significant delay and, and re-looking at things and, mm. and, and no employer wants to, to start re-going over an investigation that's already been been done. So I think that would be my number one uh, thought really in terms of, of getting these things right is, is getting that investigation right and really making sure that the people that are um, asked to investigate are those people that have got the time to do it well and have been trained to do it well and um, and, and are sufficiently removed such that they haven't already got a, 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 f- a fixed position in, in their mind and I've I've talked about them perhaps having a fixed position that well th- this is this is clearly what's happened and we also see the other way that um, there might be particular managers that uh, are people uh, are thought to be um, uh, good, good, good employees within the organisation, and, and 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 therefore, there's almost just an assumption that whatever they tell you is right, and and, mm. and therefore it's not tested properly, and so it, it, it's it's it, it's that sort of independence to how you receive and, and looking at everything with a critical eye that I think is critical from an employment law perspective. And then just lastly, to both of you, because obviously Anthony Collins has got a large number of faith clients is there anything in particular in respect to those faith organizations who you represent that they need to be aware of in respect of safeguarding and employment law and safeguarding and regulatory law where even after ICSA even after other things that where things could still be better I would like to say that and I can say um, certainly our, our clients seem to come out of ICSA with um, a you know a gl- glowing praise um, mm. but both from um, the inquiry and and also in the case of one of the in particular one of the witnesses that we supported um, from lawyers representing victims groups and I think that is probably a reflection that there are organizations which have spent a lot of time um, reviewing and updating their safeguarding policies and procedures so that they have got really robust processes um, in place. Whereas in comparison, um, where criticisms were being made, um, certainly in the module we were involved in during um, ICSA, it was organisations which perhaps, um, can I suggest, were relying more upon sort of the, 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 the inherent approach that they thought their, that their organisation took to do mm. the right thing Mm. rather than having robust procedures robust procedures in place. And therefore, if there's one message, I suppose, for faith-based organisations, it's not to rely on the fact that you are a faith-based organisation and therefore the starting point is that you're dealing with good people. It's that even within organisations which um, are, are aiming to do the right thing, you've got to make sure that you've got robust processes and procedures in place they're kept under regular review and that you are constantly asking yourself the question how could we be doing this better what's you know what are the lessons that we could learn from other sectors where can we where where can we share the learning that we've got where can we get advice in terms of doing this doing this better and i think from an employment law perspective the thing that i think there's probably still area for improvement around is a, a greater clarity early in a process about what information is going to be shared with with whom because i think mm-hmm. sometimes from a safeguarding perspective a safeguarding officer will, will have taken information and kept a view that this is going to have to be 
dealt with very tightly and, and, and certain information won't be able to be communicated. And when that comes to a, the disciplinary investigation or a disciplinary hearing, that uh, uh, someone who's accused of, of something might feel that they haven't got the full picture of, of, of the evidence. And and perhaps if in the safeguarding process that had been thought about quite what might need to be communicated and, and, and how and that appropriate consent had been agreed that might have made that easier than it than it than it than it, than it might have been so i think agreeing how information is shared in 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 respective processes i think is a critical thing that, that there's probably still a bit more work that can be done on if you want to know more about us visit 39essex.com if you want to know more about matthew and tim's work then you can visit anthonycollins.com if you want to connect with us on socials then you can add me on twitter at council tweets you can add the podcast at safe underscore cast. You can connect with the public law team at 39 Public Law. And you can connect with Anthony Collins at ACS LLP. Join us next time for Everyone's Business, a safeguarding podcast available where you download your podcasts. Find our other podcasts and resources over at 39essex.com. <laughs> <laughs>